Hey there, welcome back. This is MLEX's weekly podcast on regulatory affairs. Thank you for joining us yet again. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. So today we thought we'd unpack some themes relating to mergers and acquisitions. We'll drill down on an interesting case unfolding in the European Union at the moment, that is the London Stock Exchange's plans to acquire Refinitiv, a financial data company. The regulatory clearance of that deal will involve some interesting soul-searching on the reliability of behavioural as opposed to structural remedies – And don't worry, we will provide a definition of structural versus behavioural very soon, so don't let that terminology put you off an otherwise fascinating topic of conversation. First up, though, let's cross the Atlantic to talk about the US Department of Justice's new Merger Remedies Manual. The guidelines are the work of the DOJ's antitrust chief, and the document has been read and passed by M&A regulators around the world for good reason. Jenna Ebersole is an MLEX M&A correspondent in Washington, D.C. She has written a fine piece of analysis on the manual, which we've posted to our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. And she joins me now. Uh, Jenna, firstly, tell me something about how this guide came about. What's the history? Sure. So this guide, it was released earlier this month, and it follows some other previous guides. So one was released in 2004 during the President Bush administration, and then also a 2011 guide um, during President Obama's first term. So this guide, um, you know, these are really meant to sort of capture how the DOJ is currently evaluating remedies for mergers. So um, it, you know, supposed to offer transparency, a little bit of insight into the criteria they consider, and how they go about deciding if a remedy fixes the issues in a deal. Okay, well, tell me something about those remedies and how the Justice Department's perspective on remedies has evolved. Sure. So when it comes to remedies, this guide is quite different from the one during, released during the Obama administration. And that one actually was withdrawn earlier during Trump's administration. So this guide the the key issue is the difference between structural and behavioral remedies. So structural remedies are sales of assets to vestitures to solve problems in a deal. And behavioral remedies are basically promises for how a company will behave once it's combined. Um, So Delrahim, Macon Delrahim, is the head of the DOJ's antitrust division. And from the Basically, the time he was confirmed by the Senate to his position, he staked out a strong preference for divestitures as opposed to commitments, behavioral commitments. And that's that's in pretty stark contrast to the view of um, Christine Varney, who was President Obama's first antitrust chief. So her guide in 2011, you know, it didn't express the same preference. It, it laid out potential conduct commitments that she would accept. And the logic for this is that a structural commitments in the eyes of Del Rahim are far more reliable uh, than simply commitments to behave in a certain way post-merger, right? That's right, yes. And actually, you know, his view is not, in some ways, Christine Barney's, the Obama administration's first term, that was a bit more the outlier. So in several deals, she accepted these sorts of commitments. And, and that changed a little bit in President Obama's second term. So uh, Badal Rahim has really gone further than, you know, even the 2004 
perspective with this. And he believes that uh, behavioral remedies are sort of inherently regulatory. So they require the antitrust division to police potentially ambiguous behavior into the future, as opposed to perhaps a cleaner fix. And Jenna, you just mentioned in passing before that Del Rahim withdrew the uh, Obama-era manual um, and, in fact, reverted, um, I think he reverted to the, what was it, the 2004 manual. That's right. Uh, it, yes. Was that predicated on this concern that was being expressed about behavioural remedies rather than structural remedies? So, yes, I think that was, you know, the a key driving factor in his decision. And like I said, from basically the start of his term, he staked out this view. And then this 2011 guide really wasn't consistent with that view. And, um, you know, this back when he gave the original speech in 2017, it was significant because the AT&T Time Warner merger was pending. And that was the kind of deal that some people expected to be fixed with a behavioral commitment. Instead, he sued to block it. Okay, well, let's get into technical jargon now. What does it mean when the guide says that the DOJ may seek a two-phase merger trial? Sure. So um, this is kind of an interesting concept that Del Rahim first outlined last year. So the DOJ, you know, sued to block the AT&T Time Warner deal and lost. They lost with the lower court and they lost on appeal. So he gave a speech in the aftermath and he said, you know, we might approach this differently next time and here's how. So um, basically in that deal, you had Time Warner's Turner sent, they sent an arbitration offer to rival distributors to alleviate concerns. So basically they came up with their own behavioral fix. Um, and that was part a key part of the trial. You know, the, the judge heard evidence on this offer, which the DOJ didn't think was sufficient. So Del Rahim is saying rather than sort of muddying the waters during the trial and having the judge have to consider the merger as well as the proposed fix. Let's have two-phase trials. So first we consider, is the deal legal? Is it illegal just on the merits? And then once that decision is made, if the deal is, you know, not legal, then you would consider whether the, the company's offer overcomes that decision. And you know, I've talked to people about this idea and they say this would be a pretty, you know, distinctive change and it also could drag out the process a little bit, make it take longer depending on how courts, you know, it's not clear if courts would agree to this. Um, so that's kind of the history here. And then he has included this idea in this new guide. Okay, now what's the significance of the DOJ's willingness to accept private equity buyers? This is clearly an issue that has been resonating around the world, increased participation of private equity uh, funds. What does the new manual have to say about that? Yeah, so it is interesting. The DOJ actually went as far as to say private equity purchasers may be preferred in some cases. So it, study, it cited a, a study by its sister agency on merger remedies, and it said um, basically the, the rationale is that in some cases, funding from private equity and other investment firms was important to the success of the remedy because the purchaser had flexibility in investment strategy, was committed to the di divestiture, and was willing to invest more when necessary. So that's 
kind of the basis for the DOJ statement. And it stands in pretty stark contrast to the view of a Democrat at the Federal Trade Commission now, who has specifically said he thinks the FTC needs to think harder um, about these and the incentives of these buyers may not ensure a long-term competitive market. And he actually voted against a deal in 2018 um, over his concerns about um, a buyer that was backed by a private equity. Is that really just reflective of the ideological differences between Republican and Democrat when it comes to the role of private equity? Is that what this is about? I mean, there clearly, um, there's a pretty stark contrast here. I mean, the fact that the FTC, also headed by Republicans uh, right now, um, accepted a private equity buyer in that 2018 case, that kind of illustrated the the Republican-Democrat split here. Well, it'll be interesting to see if if we have a, a Democratic president, how this might change. Okay, so what are the main takeaways here for merging companies? What do they have to look out for under this new manual, this new regime? So this manual gives a little bit of color on what exactly the criteria is that Del Rahim is looking for. So it says that if there will be a conduct remedy accepted, the companies must prove first that the deal generates efficiencies that can't be achieved without the the merger. Second, that uh, remedy with a divestiture isn't possible. Third, that this proposal will completely cure the anti-competitive harm. And fourth, that it can be effectively enforced. So this is a pretty, you know, tall order potentially for companies if they would like to have this DOJ accept a conduct remedy. So certainly if you've got, you know, particularly a vertical deal like AT&T Time Warner, this is something you'll have to keep in mind. Jenna, it's been great fun talking. Thank you so much for your uh, coverage of this important issue. Yes, thank you. Jenna Ebersol is an MLEX correspondent covering M&A, and she was speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Her analysis is titled New USDOJ Merger Manual Doubles Down on Strong Preference for Divestiture Fixes. And you'll find it at the usual spot on our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. Just click on the Insight Center tab. MLEX, of course, is spelt M-L-E-X. Coming up, LSE's play for Refinitiv, and what does it have to do with Italy's stock exchange? You're listening to MLEX's weekly regulatory podcast. I'm James Panicki. Now, LSE's play for Refinitiv is a big deal, no matter what your currency of choice, $27 billion US dollars. Yet the nature of the deal, a stock exchange acquiring a data company, makes it especially intriguing for those of us whose imaginations are fired up by this kind of stuff. Natalie McNellis is one such person, and she covers M&A from Brussels for MLEX, and I'm happy to say she joins me now. Now, Natalie, why is this deal important? Why should we care about it? Well, It's important because LSE has had really some tough uh, times in the past. So people are watching it really carefully because, for example, when LSE tried to merge with the Deutsche Börse, the German stock exchange in 2017, they actually got blocked, which is a pretty rare occurrence. And so 
Also, you know, in the past, we've seen uh, Deutsche Börse uh, try to um, merge with the New York Stock Exchange that also fell through. So it's an interesting case because of the the magnitude of the interest. Mm. Now, LSE, of course, is the London Stock Exchange. It's trying to buy Refinitiv, which is a financial data company. Why is this problematic? Uh, I mean, on paper, it doesn't look like there'd be a major overlap, right? Uh, yeah, I think that is the you put the finger on what is really um, interesting here, because when you hear LSE uh, and you, you think about the troubles it's had in the past, it was always about merging two stock exchanges. And here they're not merging a, a stock exchange. It's LSE buying a downstream company, Refinitiv. So Refinitiv uses data that LSE provides to provide a downstream service to traders. They sort of take the data and they consolidate it and they massage it and they make it usable for traders. So in a sense, this is what we call a vertical uh, issue. And there's a concern that LSE owning this uh, important uh, data provider would sort of put the squeeze on competitors to Refinitiv. You know, once it owns Refinitiv, it would have an incentive perhaps to prefer Refinitiv and to give it better terms than other people. So from a regulatory standpoint, how does uh, one address that problem? How would the company reassure the regulator, namely the European Commission, uh, that this uh, will not lead to anti-competitive effects? The concern they'll have uh, is whether the competitors of Refinitiv, the ones who also provide financial data, will they be able to get the raw data that they need? And I, what I think in this kind of situation, what we're going to see is a, a remedy which is behavioral. If you remember what Jenna was just talking about, the behavioral versus the structural remedies, what we would need here most likely is a behavioral remedy where LSC promises to give that data to competitors of Refinitiv on you know, reasonable terms, fair terms. And those are the kind of behavioral remedies that would be appropriate for solving this kind of vertical problem. And we've heard how the Department of Justice in the United States is not particularly well disposed towards uh, behavioral uh, remedies. What would the European Commission think about them? The, you know, the European Commission has uh, similar concerns about behavioral versus structural remedies. I would say they are less militant about it than in the United States. They do uh, accept some behavioral remedies, but they, they definitely prefer the structural. The problem is in this situation where the LSE is buying Refinitiv, they're not going to sell off their data. This is too big of an ask. It would undermine the entire deal. So the only real solution is a behavioral one for this part of the problem. Mm. Okay, but that then leads us to a discussion about another possible remedy involving Borsa Italiana. How does the Italian stock exchange um, uh, play into this uh, scenario? I knew that we were going to come around to the, the Italian stock exchange because I know that was what really uh, piqued uh, your interest uh, <laughs> yeah, and what made right, you yeah. uh, interested in, in this deal in particular. Um, Selling the the Borsa Italiana, that is a, that's a structural remedy. So that's the kind of remedy that the that the regulator would really like. Um, I think there we're talking about a different category of problems uh, in this deal. So the first uh, discussion we were having was about uh, LSC providing uh, data 
downstream that Refinitiv would massage and provide to traders. There's also another overlap. It's not a very big overlap, but it's what we call a horizontal overlap. And this is in the electronic trading and clearing of government bonds. And there, LSE has a company which does that called MTS. And so does Refinitiv. Refinitiv has a holding in a company called TradeWeb, and they both do the same thing. So that's on the same level, and that's what we call horizontal. One of them has to go. That's something that they can sell off with a structural remedy. So you would say sell off MTS. Why are they talking about selling off the entire uh, Milan uh, stock exchange? Um, the reason that they're doing that is a, more of a corporate reason. And when you listen to the executives talk about this deal, they say, well, you know, we just wanted to see if there were some advantages to keeping the two together, which is, I think, just code for saying, you know, maybe we could get more, we could get more money for this uh, sell-off if we sell the two together. And just to be absolutely clear, we should uh, we should clarify that MTS is in fact part of Borsa Italiana, and Borsa Italiana is itself owned by LSE, right? Exactly. Okay, so where does this get us? Is the deal likely to get through uh, the scrutiny of the European Commission this time? My feeling on this is I think it will get through. It's it's interesting because MTS, we've seen this uh, company before. We It was an issue when, uh, when the LSE tried to merge with the Deutsche Börse, um, all that really they needed to get the approval at that point was to sell MTS, and they refused to do it, which was kind of a surprise to everyone. And I think um, there were more factors at play at that moment, and there was a lot of discussion that the reason uh, LSE uh, refused was actually because when they signed the deal with Deutsche Börse, they hadn't expected the outcome of the Brexit referendum. And so it, this was in the aftermath, and they and they wanted to back out of the deal with uh, Deutsche Börse. It's funny because this time around, the fact that they're willing to not only sell MTS but even sell the entire uh, Borsa Italiana is uh, really seems like a great a big commitment on the part of LSE to get this deal through. And you know, also now there's still a bit of a of a Brexit issue because there's a lot of excitement in Europe about getting uh, back in on the continent, uh, the Milan Stock Exchange. Uh, so I think that um, we have both the regulatory issues and the, and the nitty gritty of, uh, of regulators and what they want. And then you have also these broader political issues and what is good for you know, continental Europe's uh, position in the financial markets. Natalie, this is a, a fantastic story. Thank you so much for uh, walking us through it uh, today. It's been great. It was my pleasure. Thank you. MNEX journalist Natalie McNellis, who covers M&A for us from Brussels. Her analysis of this deal is well worth a read, which is why it's now out from the paywall and ready for you to enjoy. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. Now, if privacy policy development and implementation is your thing, well, next week's podcast should be right up your alley. We'll be taking a look at Brazil's new data privacy and protection legislation, the LGPD, with one of our reporters in Sao Paulo, who has been covering every twist and turn in the process. Then it will be back to Brussels to talk about uh, progress, or arguably the lack of progress, on e-privacy legislation. Things have been stalled in the EU for quite some time, but now there's just a ghost of a chance that things may be moving again. That's next week. 
For now, though, thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to MLEX's podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. Leave a review, tell your friends about it, and please send through your feedback. I'm James Paniki. Bye for now. Bye for now.